All right, welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. I want to get right into it because uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. Today we have the co-founder of Chapter. Uh, Mr. Gareth Kay has been kind enough to join. How are you, sir? Adam, I'm really well. Thank you for having me. Oh, dude. We, uh, in full disclosure, Gareth and I have been talking for about 10 minutes before we recorded, and we had to remind ourselves that we had to start a show. Uh, so <laughs> I know this is going to be a great uh, chat, so I hope everybody enjoys it as I know as much as I know I'm going to. Um, Gareth, would you mind, you're at Chapter now, and I, you've been there for a few years since founding that. Yeah. Uh, would you mind giving people a bit of background on where you came from and how you started? Yeah, sure. Um, hopefully, this is not going to be far too uh, a long-winded backstory. So, um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I did not grow up in uh, Tennessee. I grew up in the UK. Um, <laughs> I uh, was a, a failed musician. Um, I was uh, a drummer and uh, not good enough. My bands were not good enough to have any success out there in the world and uh, ended up studying politics, philosophy, and economics at university. And um, realized at the end of that course that a lot of my friends were going off to work in uh, banks or consultancies. I had a real aversion, frankly, to suits um, and was trying to think what to do next. I realized that um, my kind of passion for economics really came from trying to understand why people did um, what they do um, right. and you know, what the choices they make in their day-to-day -day life consciously or more often than not unconsciously. Um, and um, kind of realized that was interesting to me and also that I was lucky enough to grow up at a time in the UK when you know you polled most people and they would say but the TV ads were better than the TV programs they were <laughs> quote unquote interrupting I think is around about 70% of people at the time would say you know the ads were better and this is kind of the golden days of you know CDP and Low Howard Spink and in particular John Webster uh, at BMP DDB who was just making you know some just awesome bits of amazing branded entertainment to use a kind of a, a phrase of the day um, for a whole bunch of brands and just realized that maybe advertising would be something I could ally that kind of passion for people with um, the kind of creativity that I was craving. So I uh, wrote off to a bunch of agencies. I think 95% of them either didn't get back to me or said no. I was lucky <laughs> enough to, um, I think out of serendipity, to be quite honest, Adam, uh, get an internship at a small agency in London called Harari Page. Um, they brought me in, and it was great because it was such a small place. It was about 25, 30 people. That, you know, as much as I went in there, of all things, an account manager, and believe me, I was maybe the single worst account manager that's ever traipsed the hallways of advertising. Um, I was lucky enough to kind of get exposed to lots of the different disciplines and basically be allowed to have a go at them, whether it's kind of, you know, broadcast production, or as I discovered this thing called planning, and there's a brilliant lady there, Patsy Douglas, um, who worked there three half days a week, and I just became really interested in this planning thing that honestly I hadn't heard about going into the industry. And I got more and more interesting to me. I realized that unfortunately, um, if I was gonna really grow as a planner, um, it was not going to be the right agency for me just because she was only there for, you know, one and a half days a week. There's no mentorship. And there was, you know, it, it was there, but it wasn't necessarily fully ingrained into the culture. Um, so I began to try and find a place to go and be a planner. Um, I was very lucky to finally convince um, an agency that after a couple of mergers, after I joined, became TBWA uh, to give me a chance as a planner. I was lucky enough as well 
to work with a brilliant um, head of planning there called Chris Baker. Chris was um, one of the first judges of the IPA Effectiveness Awards. So he was really good at showing how you could use data both in imaginative ways to inspire more effective and more creative communications, but also to really prove its commercial impact. So he was a great guy to learn from up front um, and then spent, you know, the next 10 years working with some amazing people. And I got great advice from Lawrence Green, who founded Fallon there, that um, the trick in your career is not to go and follow the agencies or brands that you feel are the hot ones at the moment and instead look for the people you would be working with day in, day out, who yeah. could give you a different take on what planning is or could be. And the beauty of that is you begin over time to kind of, as Jeremy Bullmore describes how brands are built, which are kind of like birds build their nests from the scraps and straws they chance upon. It's how you build your planning style, I believe, as well. So I was lucky to work with a, a really amazing group of planners at all types of different levels, whether they were peers or um, or the folks um, I was reporting into. And they just kind of helped me see different ways of thinking about planning and strategy. Um, so I left London um, in 2003. I decided I wanted to move across to the States. Um, again, serendipity is the story of my career. I've been a, an incredibly lucky man, probably the story of my life, to be quite honest. And, <laughs> what what um, drove you to want to come to the States? Oh, it was, it was the most pathetic thing where I was getting a little bit tired of London. Um, there were some personal issues. More importantly, I just didn't know where to go and work next. And yeah. I would come over to the States on vacation, go to New York, and then come back through Boston. I had a couple of friends who were in bands there. And I would come back through Boston. And I'd thought about New York in the past and just went, you know what? It's just a bigger, more hectic London. Um, so is it really worth the move of thousands of miles to go and do? But I really began to like Boston. I was always a big fan of the music scene there. I had friends there. And when I was there for um, a vacation with my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, I had a recruiter who set me up with a kind of three or four conversations. And three or four of them didn't really go anywhere because they were in big agencies. They almost felt too big to me and also agencies where I wasn't really sure if they knew what planning was um, or if it was really <laughs> properly, or if it really was, you know, properly baked into the offering day in, day out of the agency. It was always like they felt that they needed to have it rather than wanted to have it. Uh, yep. And then literally the day I was leaving to fly back home, she said, go in for a coffee with these folks at this new agency called Modern Easter. Um, I don't know what they are looking for, if they know what planning is, but they were up for a cup of tea. So I went in there for what I thought was going to be uh, a 30-minute cuppa and left there three hours later having been absolutely blown away by their ambition, by particularly the two creative founders, Lance Jensen and Gary Kepke, who were just no, those brilliant, guys were doing brilliant amazing people, thing. amazing yeah. work. They just blew me away and literally two days later I had a job offer and was packing myself up to move across to the States. And it was just a case of being right place, right time with the right people. And um, they asked me to come and introduce planning into the agency. It was at the time, I think, two or three years old. And they'd done some great work uh, for The Gap. They were done some great work for MTV. They were doing great work with Hummer. And they asked me to come in and establish planning um, and build it into the agency and build out the discipline. And it was a chance I simply just could not say no to. So was there for six years, had a really happy time. The agency went through pretty awesome growth. I think I joined, there's about 25 people there. When I left, it was about 160, 170 people maybe. Um, and um, 
I just decided that at that point that I needed to learn more about digital um, and kind of what was going on in the digital space. And the reality is, was sorry, was then, and in many cases is still now, that um, it was seen as being a specialization. It was not really being done in a, a meaningful way inside a lot of agencies. And I was also just really obsessed, less about digital as being a channel to fill, and actually much more is about how is digital transforming communications at the most kind of macro um, everyday level and how it's transforming what brands and products and services needed to offer. Um, so I was having conversations with uh, a big global famous digital agency in New York that I'm sure you can guess the three letters of. Um, <laughs> decided that um, New York was sadly not going to be the right place for my wife and myself. I just had a daughter, so she was about six months old and just did not feel right. And my wife was incredibly generous as always and said, if it's the right thing to do, we'll go and do it. But I realized I was going to be traveling and working long hours and just felt really unfair to do. But as I was going through that interview process, um, I called up my friend, Mike Geiger, who was the head of digital at Goodby Silverstein and Partners and um, ran digital production there, really kind of built out a very strong digital group inside Goodby and actually was really influencing the way the agency was thinking about the work it made. And I was called Mike up to ask him about RGA and oh, I was giving them away. RGA, you can probably guess. And uh, I asked Mike about what life <laughs> was. Uh, that out. <laughs> it's fine, we can leave it here. I'm sure it's not a major problem. Um, Mike, um, I asked him about, you know, what was day-to-day -day life there because he knew people who worked there. Uh, the next thing I knew, he said, well, don't worry, I will find this out for you and get back to you. And then the next day at, uh, what time was it? Probably about 8 a.m. in, no, 8 or 9 a.m., probably about 9 o'clock in the morning. I remember very well, I was getting my morning coffee at uh, Starbucks uh, near the office in Boston. And I, my phone went off and it was a phone call from Derek Robson, who was the president there who started the call off quite brilliantly by saying, um, you probably don't want to talk to me seeing I blackballed you at BBH, you know, 15 years ago or something <laughs> where, you know, I really thought I was going to get a job at BBH working on Levi's. True? It was like, yeah, it was like the dream job. I'd done the absolute marathon of interviews with, you know, amazing people there like Jim Carroll and Emma Cookson and went in for what I believe was my blessing by the uh, head of the Levi's account, who was Derek at the time. And for some reason, just absolutely bombed the interview. Um, and uh, Derek was brilliant because he obviously remembered, for some reason, remembered who I was um, and just started the call up by saying, I guess I need to apologize for saying no to you at BBH. And I just laughed about it. And uh, he said, you know, we really want you to come out and have a chat um, with the folks at Goodby. So I, you know, had never really thought about moving to the West Coast. Um, obviously, I had a huge amount of admiration for Goodby. They're probably one of the, two or three agencies in the UK I was really aware of, primarily because there used to be a show on the UK called Talent on TV that would have some of the best adverts from around the world, quite often the funniest right. yeah, adverts. Yeah, would show up. Yeah, and Gooby would show up. And I was always like, those guys just do amazing work. Um, so I felt it, I had to go and say at least hello to them and kind yeah. of get a sense and of the you, place. And you essentially chose the, the Boston of the West Coast. Is, uh, Pretty much, yeah. It's a very, very European similar, city. Right? Yeah, very European city. So, you know, as usual, I wasn't making the big, brave move. Um, and um, went in to meet the, the people there, met a lot of the partners, uh, met a lot of the folks in the creative department and just fell in love with the place over the course of literally one day. And again, is that thing where... You know, two days later, um, I made the, the jump over to Goodby Silverstein and had 
an amazing five years there. They put way too much faith in me. I hopefully paid some of that back to them. I started off running digital strategy. They then, for some reason, asked me to take over the kind of brand strategy group and then the overall strategic function uh, and left there as a partner and chief strategy officer and left there, honestly, really, really sadly, because that place I learned more in five years than I've learned in my whole career from folks like Derek, from Robert Riccardi, from amazing planners there like John Fork, um, from great creative people like Margaret Johnson. But importantly, I went through a massive transformation period working with Rich Silverstein, who um, just taught me so much about the power of simplicity in ideas, um, the power of making decisions, the power of really sweating the details. And he just taught me so much about how to look at work and how to evaluate work and how to make ideas come to life in even more magnificent ways once you kind of actually made them. Um, I, I learned so much from them. But the, the point came um, towards the end of my time there where I just decided that um, I was getting increasingly frustrated about the realities of working inside an advertising agency where they have a muscle memory, and rightly so, which is set up to make amazing advertising and do that in an efficient and effective way. Um, and yep. allied with that, a group of clients who have a, a certain perception of what Goodby Silverstein was really good at, and they were really damn good at making very emotional bits of film. Yes, they were doing great digital work as well, but really their heritage was in making amazingly compelling uh, bits of communication that would drive an emotional connection between people and brands. And it was really good at doing that. And that's why clients came there. But I was sitting there probably in my last year or so doing a whole bunch of new business pitches, working with existing clients, and just honestly sitting there and going, in all conscience, is making an advertising campaign the best thing to do? Is it what they really need? And it felt in many ways like the client briefs were increasingly becoming like um, paint-by-number pictures um, right. where they'd had, you know, their internal marketers work on the brief, probably with some type of brand consultancy as well, more often than not by that point. And you would get the brief from the client and you would sit there and go, I'm not sure if this is the right picture, and I'm pretty damn sure that painting is the wrong activity in order to solve what is the underlying business problem that is getting in the way of them either, you know, growing their business or maintaining their business. And yeah, 60 just, second TVC is not going to yeah, fix this. Absolutely. You know, it's definitely, you know, I'm not saying that I'm absolutely going advertising does not work anymore. It absolutely does work, but it's not the solve uh, to every single problem. And so I just really felt that I wanted to, give it a shot and take a chance at trying to build a different type of creative company um, and one that was much more focused around solving a problem in whatever form it takes and try and give all the kind of clarity and objectivity of advice that, you know, great management consultancies, consultancies, frankly, like Naked may have done back in the day, um, mm -hmm. but then also be able not just to leave it at kind of the, here's a deck of thinking, but actually go and uh, make what those things were. And that made me feel that to do that, you had to start with a blank sheet of paper. So from that was uh, the genesis of Chapter. That was a very long answer to a very simple question, so apologies. That was fantastic, fantastic background for, our, for my next question. 
Um, yeah. You have switched from tea to coffee. I heard you say that clearly. You, you drink coffee in the morning, <laughs> not tea now. Absolutely. So, so. You've, so we have converted you. You are an American now. Indeed. And so you have done planning on both sides of yeah. the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And you've endured a lot of change in the advertising industry. And yep. I wanted to see what you think has how planning has been adapted for either well let's start at the beginning yeah. how has how different is planning in the US than it is in the UK now and when the when planning was born in the UK sure um, um well it's really hard sometimes to answer that as being kind of you know the broad brush of here's what makes the US in totality and the UK in totality different because the reality True. is there's, you know, different types of agencies and approaches on both sides of the pond. Some who I would argue do it quote unquote better than others. But I think there are some traits that at least, you know, and again, this is based on my time in the UK, it's 15 years ago now, um, and the realities of the US over the last 15 years. I think there are some differences. And I think a lot of that may come from, you know, um, the fact that frankly, in the UK, the discipline is 50 years old now. Um, in the US, it is about, what, probably 30 years old now, maybe, maybe 25 years old now. I'm just kind of trying to guess at when Jay Shiat brought it in. So it came in later and into more established organizations. Um, yeah. It was brought in, as Jay Chiat, you know, famously said, as the best new business tool ever invented. So there was a real sense of this is really powerful at getting business into the company. And I think some of the, as a result of that, I think maybe got a bit of baggage around being a new business winner rather than actually something that really creates value throughout the relationship with a client. Um, I think there is greater simplicity in the UK, frankly, down to the size of the uh, country, but also down to the way that client organizations are structured. Um, and probably at the time as well, the types of clients who are mostly spending money on advertising, they came mostly from the consumer packaged goods world. So there was a right. simplicity of product offering. And these were quite often either uh, brands that have been around for years or you were uh, entering a brand into an already established marketplace. So there was just lots of stuff that made it sometimes feel a bit clearer in what the output needed to be. Um, but I think in the UK, there's a, a legacy of planning being one, the way of bringing real people into the advertising development process. And that's partly about doing qualitative research and quantitative research and doing that earlier in the process to inspire strategy and creative work and to use it lightly to help shape the uh, nascent creative ideas. Um, and I think there's also in the UK, I would say, much more rigor around effectiveness and being able to demonstrate that the work works. And I think, you know, honestly, about sounding like some kind of, you know, uh, uh, a foreigner from abroad who's just going to poo-poo everything when he comes into the country. <laughs> it was a real, a real shock to me, Adam, when I came in having, you know, lived through trying to write IPA effectiveness award papers, which, you know, I think now are 30 years old, um, are incredibly hardcore in really demonstrating and isolating the effect of advertising over the long term, um, as opposed to looking at something like the Effies, which were much more, 
I would say, correlation as opposed to causation and would Absolutely. quite often look at the impact in the short term rather than the long term. And I think that's one of the things that I think is just honestly an impact of time. I think it's hitting uh, the UK now as much as it hits the US. But I think there's a, a real issue with the short termism of impact that clients increasingly look for, primarily driven by quarterly reporting um, on Wall Street. Um, when the reality is, and all the evidence you know that Peter Field and Les Bennett have, have seen over the time, is that advertising's effect happens primarily over the longer term. And I think you know that again was a massive learning for me, which is there's a uh, desire for immediacy in the U.S. that perhaps you know obviously was always there in the U.K. They were looking for you know where's the sales uplift. But there's also, I think, much more understanding, openness and respect for the long term value that brands can create and how that helps you sell more at a later date uh, at a higher price to people, which I'm not sure is always so um, widely or deeply held in the U.S. No, you know, I, I uh, have been thinking about this very issue and it, mm. somebody can go buy a car. I can go to the Kia dealership and yep. Kias are a fine car at a lower price. I can get pretty much every feature I want or yep. I can go get a Maserati if I'm, if I'm fortunate enough. Yes. The person who buys the Maserati for three to five X the Kia cost does not feel ripped off. Yep he feels or she feels that they got a value because they got the brand mm. and all that comes along with that brand. Yeah. That, that, that couldn't be built. Kia cannot launch. Hyundai could not have launched Kia as a luxury brand. Like they didn't like Genesis is their luxury brand. Yes. They spent a dozen years getting it to where it is, where people are finally going, oh, I'll pay $50,000 for a Hyundai. Sure. I, I understand why. Um, and, and that commitment to long-term thinking is, is a lost art for, Oh, that I don't think is exclusive to Americans, but the quarterly and now for e-commerce brands, you know, let's post something and we'll know in an hour if it's a hit or not. It's like, guys, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you got no, to think uh, bigger. So true. so true. I think, you know, even the short term impact of brand on purchase choice of those in the market at that moment in time is often not looked at. I remember before my time at Gooby, I remember seeing the case study for this and just going, that is just one of those killer bits of research using the pitch that uh, I believe John Forbes and Matt Herman and Ted Fleuria had done was when they pitched Hyundai um, in the US. And we did that really classic, simple bit of research where they basically were talking to a bunch of people looking to buy a new car, kind of in the price range that Hyundai's living. And they had a kind of a, a bunch of um, a, a shot of a car amongst other cars um, with all the specs down the right hand side and asked people. Um, what they thought of the offer um, and, you know, would they be uh, open to considering that as their next car purchase? We did that in a much more eloquent way than I just explained. Um, right. and, um, <laughs> got people to, you know, give a five-point consideration scale. And the thing about the first piece of stimuli that people saw was that the car had no badge on it. It was an unbranded car, so it was from maker unknown. They then showed people the same piece of stimuli with the Hyundai badge on it and consideration dropped by about 15 points. So you immediately could go, there is a brand tax that exists. And if you don't actually begin to address that, then you are depressing, forget the long term, you are dramatically depressing your 
uh, market opportunity tomorrow um, and today. So that was just one of those like, great bits of research that just really demonstrated the impact of brand on people's minds and just shows yet again that we are irrational, emotionally driven animals. We are not homo economicus um, in any way or form. We do things that we may not really think about, but we have that kind of irrational love-hate affair with brands based on the associations we've unwittingly built in our minds over time. Oh, yeah. And they take a long time to change. Absolutely. And the problem is, I don't think we understand that those associations and that rewiring in people's minds takes a, a heck of a long time to do. So do you do you see that as a, a continuing trend as as that's not a problem with U.S. planning, but it's the way business is conducted in the U.S.? And so, therefore, agencies and planners here have to yes, yes. adapt and yeah. react to that kind of short-term push. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the biggest challenges facing the marketing industry broadly today, facing business broadly today. I think we're seeing it both sides of the ocean at the moment, both sides of Atlantic. There's definitely that being, is being seen in the UK as um, the latest back to work that Binnett and Field have shown is that campaigns are becoming increasingly short-term in nature because... One of the downsides of, I guess, the digital revolution and, you know, the digital landscape nowadays is there's lots of metrics that can be measured in the short term. So far too many objectives are being built around the short term and people simply aren't looking about long term effects. So I think planning over here is different because that was probably something that existed beforehand. And I think allied with that was just the way uh, it was introduced into the US where it was primarily seen as being a new business tool and it was being bolted on more often than not to agencies that had existed for a long time and had done great work without the discipline. I think, you know, it's quite telling that maybe, and I would, I would still argue that the strongest and most influential planning department in the US was the one that John Steele built up at Goodby and the legacy that he left behind there. Um, and I think part of that was that Jeff and Rich were genuinely interested in how it could make the work better, not just be a way to win more work. Uh, but more importantly, it was a timing thing. I think Gooby was two or three years old um, when John Steele came in and began to introduce and build the discipline. So it was malleable enough as an organization for it to really become mm -hmm. an absolutely fundamental part of the company's DNA. And I think there's no... Uh, happenstance and surprise that that is why Goodby has produced, you know, over 30 years now, by and large, very high quality work, but is highly effective year in and year out. I think one of the things I loved doing the most, and it sounds so chess beaty and, uh, and, and silly, but we used to have a credential slide. Um, we did some analysis based on um, the number of, um, effectiveness awards won per million dollars um, of revenue or per billings because if you just look at the number of effectiveness awards clearly there's an agency size effect that comes to comes into play which is if you're making right. more work you're getting more at bats and more swings therefore you should win more awards but taking you no know, taking away uh, size of agency and looking over the course of the last 20 years I see some analysis that showed that, you know, Goodby was the most efficient agency at being effective in the US. We just won more effectiveness awards um, per million dollars of billings than any other <clears throat> agency 
in the US. And I think that was testament to the legacy that John Steele, Chris Chalk, John Thorpe had built up. But also, honestly, the fact that Jeff and Rich believed it was really important to making the work better, both more creative, because our belief was the more creative the work was, the more effective it would be. And that's creative, not just in the sense of doing something new, but really finding the kind of human problem to address in advertising and finding a fresh way to go and solve that. But we're just really good at finding better problems to solve. Do you think, I mean, I've always thought of planning as a long-term investment Uh um, that you're looking out in the future, you're forecasting, you're gauging behavior today and insights today that are going to shape the future. So in this, in this quarterly or hourly satisfaction of clients era, um, how, how does, how can planning maintain its effectiveness inside agencies with, with its clients uh, when it has to uh, succeed now and down the road? There's no, you know, you see clients get hired and fired in you no, know, six absolutely. months. Because absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the short-termism affects everything, as you say, both, you know, particularly in terms of tenure as CMO. I think there's a couple of things I'd say to that, Adam. I think one is um, I still believe that planning is about helping, you know, shape the future uh, in that brand's favor. And I think that impact can begin to be felt in the business today, not just tomorrow. Um, and I also think it is about... Are you a planner who is really good at just going, here's what the world is going to look like and where your brand might need to go? Or are you really good at being useful in terms of the planning and thinking about what does that mean for the work I'm producing today for the clients? And how can I really make sure that it's baked into the work? And that comes down to making strategy that is useful, just not clever. I mean, I think there's far too many strategy decks that you see which are either the bleeding obvious or the other end of the spectrum, very clever, but you just don't quite know what to do with it. Um, and I think you right. know, the best planning is really good at making it um, useful to the creative product today, not just the creative product tomorrow. I also think a lot of good planning, yes, it is about shaping the future, but I think it's also about helping companies maybe see the real problem they need to address. And honestly, that's now a chapter where I think we're seeing a lot of success and value, you know, for the clients we work with is about being that kind of um, partner who can bring in an external perspective to help them really understand the real human problem that lies behind the real business problem. And unfortunately, I think one of the big challenges alongside the short termism we're seeing is just that increasing march of silos of specialization that have begun to crop up inside client organizations and as a result have kind of informed the um, advice ecosystem that those uh, clients tap into and you know the clearest one to me is the division between product and marketing always slightly shocks me because the last time I checked product was one of the four P's of marketing Um, but now it's been you know (laughs) basically you know divested I think that's partly down to honestly a lot of marketers basically falling in love with the promotion piece of it because that was something that was fun, relatively easy to control. They had really good partners around. It was kind of, you know, it felt probably one of the easier levers for them to pull. Um, and they kind of took their eye off the ball on products. I think they kind of basically seeded ground that others chose to fill. But that really worries me, which is, you know, if you can't think about how you can 
um, address the product um, to better meet people uh, or to fulfill unmet wants. That's a real, real issue. Um, but then you even look yeah. inside, you know, that marketing wall, which I would argue now is really more often than not, sadly, it's chief communication officers rather than chief marketing officers. Inside that communications well, there's now been massive fragmentation where, you know, there's digital agencies, social agencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's become um, a landscape where people are working to fill channels rather than to find the problem to solve, the real problem to solve, and then apply creativity to solve that problem. So I think there's just a real issue in the fragmentation of the industry now that is arguably as big a problem as short-termism, if not arguably, actually maybe a bigger problem um, because you're seeing both, you know, uh, incorrect issues being solved. So lots of companies basically making very expensive band-aids to address their symptom of the day <laughs> rather than the kind of the underlying malaise that they find. Um, and yeah. I think also just um, a lack of objectivity that is being provided by um, planners and strategists because they have to serve how they make money. Uh, and no one is providing that kind of real cohesive story of, how should the brand feel across every touch point? And more importantly, what are the things you should do in priority in order to really kind of, you know, address the human problem or better still seize a human opportunity um, that's going to go and drive the business forward over time? So I'm incredibly worried about this kind of growing uh, specialization and fragmentation. I know it, but I was very encouraged yesterday. Um, have you seen the square terminal work? Uh, I haven't. No, I haven't. Uh, all it's right, good. I, what I would love to do. Oh, it's not only is the work good, but talking about the four yep. P's, it's a, it's a product that solves an actual need from square, which is we've been waiting for them to do yep. something right. The, the it's a, I think it was a 60 and I don't know if it's a TVC or if it's just video, but it was so emotionally intelligent and smart about giving me the benefits yeah. of it as a consumer, as a store owner, as you know, as a retailer, but also making it part funny, part under recognizing the frustration, part saying these are the problems you have, I'm going to solve yeah. it. And it's so quick and smart. Yeah. I'll, I'll send it to oh, you. That sounds amazing. I'd be interested to get your, well, I think, yeah, it's really, I well think done. you make a really important point, which is, I think, you know, there are, I would argue two things that brands really need to think about nowadays and results strategists need to think about, which is one, how can you make a brand emotionally intelligent? I think that's such a lovely phrase you just used. And it is not simply about how do you make it functionally correct or make it functionally clever. It's about the emotional intelligence. Look at how Google has evolved, for example, over the last decade or so. We talked about this earlier on. Um, they become a brand that's gone from being functionally brilliant and obviously highly intelligent into having real emotional intelligence. So I think that's just a, yeah. a really important thing to think about when you're building brands. You know, it doesn't just mean if you're trying to think about how you might uh, impact products, doing the functional stuff is about how can you make the product experience feel emotionally intelligent. I think the second thing that goes kind of uh, allied to that is to shift mindset from trying to build brands that are human-like, i.e., you know, what is our personality of the brand? Is it funny or humorous? Who really cares? Um, to actually making them human-friendly and thinking about, you know, what can you do that provides some greater different value to people, whether that's through 
better utility, through entertainment, through a different uh, approach to solving a different problem. But just making them genuinely human-friendly um, is just something that I think we forget about far too often. We just end up getting caught in this trope of, you know, what does this brand, if this brand was a person, what would it look like? Who is, you know, who is our yeah, human that, archetype? That question frustrates, you know, it's me. Like, that question frustrates uh, me so much. What's yeah, celebrity? Exactly. It's like, yeah, exactly. I can't connect yeah. to a celebrity. So don't, let's not be a celebrity. Let's, I think the better question is how will we connect? To absolutely. People? Absolutely, Adam. And it's that thing where it always struck me as a bit weird, even when I first started in the industry, that we're going, let's go and give this inanimate thing um, human characteristics. And I kind of understand <clears throat> to a degree how that works. And, you know, you do begin to form associations inside people's minds. But I think those associations can be better formed by thinking, how can this brand credibly be more human friendly? So it's not just about working out where the pain points are, where the opportunities are. Um, and then building your offering around that. I think that's sometimes where some of the design consultancies and design thinking falls down is you end up with quite um, generic experiences. You know, you have to look, frankly, at web design nowadays and see that apparently there was only two ways to build a web page, apparently. Um, but I think, you know, <laughs> the, the, the trick is allying that with all the stuff that, you know, planners have always been good at and great creative people and agencies in particular, ad agencies have been good at, which is, understanding what the brand's point of view and belief system is, but then exploding yes. that across all the different moments of opportunity and working out one, um, where should you actually try and solve the problem? Because there's probably some things that you don't really, you shouldn't really bother touching. But secondly, when you do work out the problems you want to solve or the opportunities you want to seize, actually how you are going to do that. And I think there's a real danger as much as, I think there's a lot of good in the kind of whole conversation around brand purpose and the whole Simon Sinek, you know, uh, why uh, school of yeah. kind of brand thinking. I think there's a danger in that it's maybe making us forget the what and the how. And I think increasingly in a world where, you know, there's greater transparency about how businesses and brands behave, actually the what and the how is arguably more important to people than the why. And it certainly needs to be, it certainly, <laughs> at the very least, needs to be connected. And there's far too many brands now who go, yes, we're purpose-driven. And you go, well, what do you mean? They go, well, we've got this purpose statement. Um, it maybe made it. I know sometimes I want the purpose just to be like, we make razors that yeah, shave your yeah, face. I don't well. need, and like that, I'm yeah. good with that being I don't need purpose. a razor to go and solve, you know, world peace. And I think, you know, <laughs> the other big danger is they then take that purpose statement and literally go, well, we've got this purpose statement, so we're just going to message it to people now in advertising rather than actually drive that purpose through the business so it begins to affect the products and services and experience that they create. So Top it becomes bottom, like this yeah. really weird thing of, you know, that old adage of uh, putting lipstick on a pig. And people see through that really Absolutely. fast. All right. Well, I know you have to go. Um, I want to be respectful oh, you of so your much. time, Mr. K. Well, Adam, thank you so this much. Was, this was fantastic. Oh, thank you for having me. And I know that you... Of course, you and I could probably go on for another couple hours, uh, just sending ideas back and forth. So thank you for making oh, Adam, time. Thank really you so much. It. Thank you as well for writing your book, because honestly, one of the best books on marketing I've read in a long time. I because a because it's uh, very well written and very funny in parts, but also it's just clear. Uh, it's one of those great books which actually is uh, useful to people and points towards oh, how to practice. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for sharing and being generous of your thinking and sharing that with the world. I, uh, 
two thoughts on that. Number one, I'm adding that quote to to the blurb on the book for sure. Um, <laughs> number two, uh, I would I may be sending you a beta of the. Oh, that'd be second, great. I'd love uh, to love to read that. It'd be terrific. All right. Adam. Oh, awesome. Hey, look, I hope we meet in real life. If I'm ever near you, I'll let you know. And likewise, if you're ever this way, please let me know. Absolutely, we will do. Adam, thank you so much. All right, thanks.